0: Welcome to Tour Guide Tell All, where your friendly neighborhood tour guides here, sharing with you some of the more scandalous and darker sides of American history. Uh, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And we're the the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. (laughs) And we have a really fun episode for you today. We are getting to the end of 2020, which is amazing and incredible and felt like it would never end. And yet here we are. Yay. The promise of a new year is upon us. Yes. <laughs> so we felt like we talked about uh, holidays and sort of Christmas and all the fun seasonal stuff at the White House. And then Rebecca had a great idea for New Year's Eve uh, as we kind of get into the, the, the New Year's Eve celebration to do an episode about sort of the wildest, craziest New Year's Eve party ever and about the man behind it. So I am excited because this episode today is dealing with one of my favorite periods of history which is prohibition. Uh, We're gonna be talking about people with insane wealth. We're gonna be talking about corruption in the government, all sorts of good juicy stuff. So I'm really, really excited for today's episode and it makes me wanna like pop a bottle of champagne and get started.
1: Uh, Nothing's stopping you, if you wanna go (laughs) ahead and do that. We're going to talk about George Remus, who is a name that not a lot of people have heard of, but you have, I would imagine, heard about his alter ego. Uh, George Remus is going to be later memorialized in one of the most famous works of American literature. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald is going to reportedly use him as the inspiration for Jay Gatsby in The Great Gatsby. So that's kind of the sort of level of story we're, we're heading towards today. We're going to talk about... Remus. We're going to talk about prohibition. We're going to talk about the best New Year's party ever, and it's going to be really good. Before we get into it, just a quick programming note: Uh, we are we've decided to take a holiday vacation, which for us is December, but for you is January. So you're hearing this on New Year's Eve. We're going to take the next two Thursdays off, and so the next time you're going to hear our voices is going to be the 21st of January. So the third week of January, uh, we're gonna take a little bit of a two week break and then we're gonna come back and talk to you guys about uh, inaugurations and the election of 1840 and uh, William Henry Harrison and it's gonna be really great. So just so you're aware.
0: If you start going through withdrawal, if you really miss us, we encourage you to go back and listen to episodes maybe you missed. Uh, We have episodes going all the way back to March of 2020. So if you jumped in, started listening later this year, there's lots of good back episodes. We also have lots of good little mini episodes back earlier in the year. And you can always check out our YouTube channel uh, for free tours by foot. Check out some of our virtual tours. You'll see Rebecca and I in lots of our videos. So there's plenty of ways to hear us and see us during this time, but we are going to take a little two-week holiday break, because honestly, George Remus exhausts me.
1: (laughs) He really does. He exhausts me. Uh, We did Harding this year. We're going to do Remus now. Like it's been a long month for this, let alone a whole year. So two weeks, and then we'll be back at you. And I have, we have good plans for February and March too. So.
0: George Remus for me, definitely. There's, I I mean, I love that you mentioned that he's the inspiration of Jay Gatsby. For me, I definitely think a little bit of a modern day, or he would be today like a modern day, like kind of hustler. Like he was out there running every scam, every game, you know, maybe somebody we would see in the world of like hip hop or rap today. Just where can I make this money? Where can I make this bank? How can I get a piece for myself he's like a robber baron but with style
1: yes that's kind of exactly george Remus. so to get into this let's start with prohibition a little now we're gonna have to at some point do a whole episode just about prohibition because it's seriously fascinating but just to give you the barest overview prohibition was a really bad idea that we thought we could ban alcohol and as you can imagine, we still don't have a ban on alcohol. Like We repeal it only 13 years later. So it was a terrible idea. It didn't work. But it's really fascinating and leads to a lot of like interesting stuff. Now, they passed the 18th Amendment of the Constitution. If you go and read it, there's not much there. It's a very short amendment. They just basically ban alcohol. And then that's it. They don't talk about what constitutes alcohol. They don't talk about how you're going to enforce this. The amendment is just no more alcohol. So they're going to leave the enforcement mechanism up to Congress, which is definitely not the best idea, I think. (laughs) So Congress is going to enforce this. They passed a law called the Volstead Act, which is going to be the enforcement mechanism. And it does a couple of things. First of all, you can't ban drinking. Like you, that's, not a thing that you can prohibit someone from doing. It violates the First Amendment, as well as decency and common sense. You really
0: can't also enforce that in any real logical way. No,
1: it's literally unenforceable. And yeah, it's just not good. So you can ban commerce. There's a whole commerce clause in the Constitution. So what they do, the Volstead Act is going to prohibit you from selling, manufacturing and transporting alcohol. But they also can't ban all alcohol either. And so the loopholes are, there are religious practices, including the Catholics and the Jews who use liquor, wine, as part of their religious observance. Obviously, you can't prohibit that. So there's that. There's also, alcohol is used still to this day for industrial uses. There's solvents and, I don't know, not an industrial. You can't,
0: per- you can't make half the cleaning products that exist without alcohol.
1: Right. Particularly back then. And medicine, like alcohol is per- was prescribed for medicinal use back then. So they have to have loopholes. And the Volstead Act has several loopholes.
0: And many of which are fairly easily exploitable. Oh, yes. Some of these loopholes are as, as far as the eye can see.
1: You could drive a truck through these loopholes. like and
0: people did.
1: And people super Full did. Full of booze. Full of booze all the way in. It's amazing to me. So anyway, Prohibition's a bad idea. And it does not, from like the get-go, it's Prohibition goes into effect in January of 1920. And the story that we're going to tell you takes place mostly in 1920 and 21. So this is pretty immediate.
0: I'll jump in and very quickly, we'll, like uh, Rebecca said, we'll probably do an episode more in depth on Prohibition. But to give you an idea of how unseriously many people took The Volstead Act and the enforcement of it is Woodrow Wilson the man who is president during the time that prohibition becomes law is going to himself find a way around the Volstead Act so he can transport his own private alcohol stores from the White House to his new post-presidency home on S Street. And members of Congress very quickly start engaging the services of people who are going to go around these loopholes, including a man that has been dubbed the man in the green hat, who we will talk about in a future episode. So almost immediately, right, members of Congress, governors, mayors, city councils, people are very quickly figuring out that this is a law on the books, but clearly day-to-day life shouldn't change too much. And if you have the connections and the money, there's really no reason for you to have to be beholden to the Volstead Act or the 18th Amendment. No,
1: and it seems pretty easy to violate. It's not that difficult to make liquor. You need some space, but not a ton of space. And beer is an operation. You need space to brew beer. You need big vats. You need a warehouse. You need a lot of stuff. So beer is difficult to do. But like wine, you can literally ferment grapes in your backyard and make it in your basement, which is what people do. They sell a product that is basically grape concentrate. And it says on the label that if you add stuff to it, you will make wine. People are just buying the stuff and making wine out of it. So anyway, bootleggers become instantly a big thing and all over the country. Um, The one you've heard of is Al Capone. He's the biggest and most famous Al Capone is a whole thing all on his own, but he's going to be, actually play a very tangential role in Remus's story, but bootleggers are everywhere. Everybody wants to be supplied by liquor, and the demand does not go away. It's just gone under the table.
0: And it's not surprising, of course, that organized crime, which at this point has sort of been centered around a handful of industries or gambling, will immediately seize on bootlegging as a very easy way to make lots and lots of money. And so very quickly, this is an operation that is attracting plenty of people who have been involved in other criminal endeavors.
1: So George Remus does not start out as a criminal. He actually starts out as a straight and honest guy. He's an immigrant. He moves to this country from Germany when he's about six. He grows up not wealthy at all. His uncle was a pharmacist, and so his first job is a pharmacist assistant. And that's going to be an important nugget of information in a little bit, so tuck that in the back of your brain and remember that. Uh, But George Remus decides he's going to go into the law. He gets a law degree, and he's a very famous defense attorney in Chicago. He makes a good bit of money. He's not super wealthy, but he's definitely well off. And as Prohibition starts, he starts to defend a lot of bootleggers. And he's very good at it, and he's successful in getting them acquittals. And so that obviously is going to bring more bootleggers to his uh, law office, and He starts to notice that as he's getting acquittals for these bootleggers, that they will literally sit next to him, the bootleggers, and pull out a wad of $100 bills, start peeling them off and hand them to him as payment. And I'm not super familiar with the criminal justice system. I haven't interacted with it that much, but it is not my understanding that that is how it works with lawyers. My understanding is some lawyers have to beg and scrape for payment. And so George Remus is like, wait a second where are these guys getting all this money that they are literally like peeling off 20s and hundreds like carts? And he looks into it.
0: And he's thinking, okay, I I have a decent job and I make a decent living, but these guys have lots and lots and lots of money. And maybe I'm in the wrong racket.
1: Right. He's also thinking I'm a heck of a lot smarter than these dopes. If they can do this, I can do this. And The one constant in George Remus's life is that George Remus is, first of all, he refers to himself as George Remus in the third person. And he also is very convinced of his own superior intellect. So that is worth mentioning. For
0: our pop culture nerds, if you have seen the HBO series Boardwalk Empire, Remus is a character in Boardwalk Empire, and he refers to himself in the third person in the show, and when the show was airing, a lot of people were like, that can't possibly have been true. That must be a creative license. No, he really did refer to himself in the third person, and he really did think he was the smartest guy in the room, and he was not wrong. He's a smart guy, but he really had Such a sense of his own intellect and, like you said, his superiority intellectually, especially to, at the time, these bootleggers that he's defending in court. You know, a lot of these are run-of-the-mill crooks. Right. These are very... Unschooled, you know, the the school of hard knocks kind of guys.
1: Yeah, unsophisticated, unschooled, basically dime store crooks who suddenly, like, cashed in on this big bootlegging operation. These are not smart people, and so Remus figures... I can do better, and he does. He studies the Volstead Act, realizes very quickly that there is a big loophole, like we mentioned, and he also then remembers that he has a pharmacist license. So, what he's going to do, and this is a little bit complicated, but basically, liquor for medicinal purposes is going to be put in a what's called a bonded warehouse, and so you control access to it because obviously it's you know, liquor's now illegal, this is going for somewhere very specific. So what Remus is going to do is use his pharmacist license to, he creates drug companies, which can then get withdrawal permits to withdraw this bonded liquor from these distilleries for medicinal purposes.
0: Quote, unquote.
1: So far, so good. And what he's then going to do is he makes a a truck company, he he pulls together a truck company, and steals the bonded liquor literally from point A to point B on the, in the middle of the road, steals from himself this bonded liquor. He's hijacking it and it goes to a black market. He sells it on the black market. So he calls this scheme the circle. By the middle of 1921, he owns 35% of the liquor in the United States. Like he's got this huge operation. He has tentacles everywhere. And he moves to Cincinnati. He moves out of Chicago, moves into Cincinnati, because about 80% of the bonded liquor in the United States is within a few hundred miles of Cincinnati. So he buys this beautiful mansion. He also, on the way out of town, is going to buy a farm that is where he puts all of the stolen liquor for later distribution. They call it Death Valley. And over time, Death Valley is going to become more and more elaborate in terms of its defense. There's a long rode into it which is you know he's got snipers kind of peering down at you he's very worried about pirates stealing his liquor uh, and selling it themselves so he's kind of got these elaborate defenses he calls this whole scheme the circle and makes him insane amounts of money and so Remus really teaches sort of bootleggers how to pay and he's gonna this is where Al Capone kind of comes back in Remus is going to then once he's stolen the liquor from himself He's then going to sell it to bootleggers like Al Capone in Chicago. So that's how he's making money. By the end of 1921, he's worth, and it's impossible to say for sure, but he's worth upwards of $20 million, which is in 1920s money.
0: Which today is, you know, hundreds of hundreds of millions. What Remus says that I find so impressive is he sort of realizes quickly that bootleggers are really the middleman and he doesn't want to be the middleman, he wants to be the supplier. And so because he has something that most people in the bootlegging field don't have, which is the pharmacist's license, he's able to get that kind of direct access. So the stealing from himself is sort of genius because most bootleggers are hijacking trucks that belong to other people. That draws the attention of the cops. uh, So you're much more likely to having to be fighting off law enforcement. Remus cuts out a lot of that. He's also really smart by not being in Chicago or New York, where there's one more competition, but also way more raids and enforcements. So by taking himself to Cincinnati and the outskirts of Cincinnati, which is a city, there's a market, but it's nothing like Chicago and New York. And frankly, if you know a little bit about alcohol in America, we don't distill the good stuff in New York or Chicago. We do that in Kentucky and Tennessee, which is close to Cincinnati. So Remus to me, I mean, you do see the fact that he is so much smarter, big picture than most of the guys in this game. And he really quickly goes like, I don't want to just be running booze. I want you to come to me and be buying it from me. And that's how he's able to make, I mean, there are bootleggers making millions of dollars. This is how he's able to make those hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in today's money.
1: He's called the king of the bootleggers. And he kind of falls, he's not really as well known today for reasons we'll get into, but at the beginning of Prohibition, if you want the good stuff, you go to Remus to get it. And he's partner in all of this. He has people who work for him, and he has paid off, Government officials from Cincinnati to Washington DC and everywhere in between but his partner in all of this is his wife Imogen. Imogen is his second wife. He was married to his first wife when they started hanging out. Uh, she was getting a divorce. He was getting a divorce. It happens. Anyway he handles her divorce and then they get married and she apparently seems to be like the only woman he ever trusted. And she's his partner. He calls her the prime minister. She is, in all of his schemes, she's number one. She knows all of his business dealings. She's able to act for him in sort of all of these intricate deals. And Imogen's like number one. So they buy this extravagant home in Cincinnati in an area of the city called Price Hill. I don't know anything about Cincinnati, but evidently it was very luxurious back in the 20s. And they're extravagant is not even the word. Uh, They're going to fill this house up with crystal and art and rare books. And Remus is a man of pretension. He's very well educated, very well read. He wants to fill his home up with really objects of art and fine furniture and the whole thing. And he has this very elaborate home and does not spare any expense on this house. And then he sets about entertaining. And this is where we come to the greatest New Year's party of all time.
0: Ever. I just want to say for a minute, though, like the scale of his operation. I mean, he had about 3,500 people who worked for him. And these were many people who've been put out of work because of prohibition. I mean, he's basically running a huge company. So he has all these people who consider him their hero. He's given them work. He's providing them something they want, which is alcohol. He is, of course, savvy in bribing government officials, uh, particularly in and around Cincinnati. So he's basically like the mayor without being the mayor. He wields all the political power. He wields the money. And he has this huge operation under him. So when I think about these, par- this the New Year's Eve party in particular, but when I think about these parties, you have to remember that he's got everybody and their mother as part of his crew. And it's not just criminals, it's it's the government, it's other business tycoons, it's everybody.
1: He's bribing everybody all the way up. He is in close contact with a man named Jess Smith, who is the aide to the Attorney General Harry Doherty. He comes to Washington regularly. They will meet at what used to be the Hotel Washington, what's now the W, and Remus will regularly give him bribes of $10,000, dollars $30,000 dollars. Uh, basically to sort of make sure that his operation continues. He's bribing city officials, town officials, local officials. Everybody knows what's going on and nobody stops it. So the party. It's New Year's Eve. 1921 so 21 to 22 and he's gonna throw this massive party he invites a hundred people of the finest families in Cincinnati and he's gonna give them all kinds of crazy party gifts this is the party you want to go to if you're a gentleman you get a diamond stick pin which is like a tie thing from the 20s and you get a brand new Pontiac car if you're a lady Ooh. I know, Pontiac, got to buy American, obviously. Uh, So, and this is 1921, like cars are a luxury item in 1921. These are a big deal.
0: It's kind of amazing that he gave them to women too, because women, not that many women drove. I mean, if you were wealthy enough, maybe you might know how to drive and it's sort of a sport for the wealthy, but the average lady, especially I think of like a sophisticated lady of leisure in Cincinnati. I can't imagine she'd have cause to like need a car.
1: I know, but you get this nice Pontiac and it just sounds, I can't imagine showing up to this party and there's a hundred people. So that means there's 50 brand new Pontiacs (laughs) lined up on this Avenue waiting for you. Oh, here's the key. Okay. (laughs) Just amazing to me. When you sit down for dinner at this party, someone starts to look underneath their plate and there's a thousand dollar bill just waiting for you. In the after party, Remus is going around lighting cigars with $100 bills. So he will literally light $100 bills on fire to light the gentleman's cigars. There is, of course, the finest liquor and wine at this party. It's crazy. $1,000 in
0: 1921 today is about $15,000. So that would be like finding $15,000 under your plate.
1: And again, he does this for everybody. This is 100 people.
0: But to him, it's it's pocket change. It's like slipping somebody a 20.
1: The best part about this is Remus himself does not drink. He's a teetotaler, a lifelong teetotaler. Doesn't touch it. Doesn't trust it.
0: Which is so smart. Never touch your own supply.
1: So he's watching everybody like come to his house, enjoy his hospitality, lighting their cigars with hundred dollar bills. This is so gangster. And he's not drinking. He's just enjoying everything. And at midnight, the coup de gras of this entire affair is at midnight, the entire party walks through the house towards the brand new Turkish-style baths that he has just installed. He calls them the Imogen baths, of course, because after his wife. And there's this indoor pool, which indoor pools for the 20s is insanity. The technology is brand new. It's heated. And everybody just loses their mind at the extravagance. And how cool are the remises And this is amazing. And it's just so great. Now, obviously, if you live this large, someone's going to notice. In fact, a lot of someone's notice. And what's interesting to me about this is he does, like I mentioned, he buys off the attorney general, Harry Doherty. but Harry Doherty has an assistant attorney general named Mabel Walker Willebrandt. And she's someone we should do a podcast on too, because she's fantastic. She's the first woman to serve in this role. And she has been put in charge of prohibition, which is an incredibly thankless job. So obviously they're going to give it to a woman. And Mabel walker Willebrandt decides that he's been living a little too large, something's going on here, and she wants to look into it. And amazingly enough, Harry Doherty, the AG, doesn't stop her. Even though he's on the take, He doesn't stop her from doing
0: He probably figures, I'm getting my money. I'm not going after him. Who cares what she does? There's also, I think, probably a sense that because it is a thankless job and because she is a woman in this overwhelmingly male world, that she's not going to be able to get him on anything. So why not let her chase? It makes it look like the government's doing its job. But it's sort of perfect for Doherty because he can stay separated from it.
1: Right. Exactly. Like, let her try... And give her all the resources she needs. And she won't be successful because everybody's on the take except for her. Somebody put once that Mabel Walker Willebrandt was the only person in America who was not in on the joke. And that's probably true. Uh, Everybody else is on the take, but she's not. And so Doherty probably figures, let her try. Like, she ain't going to go anywhere with it. But she does. Uh, She is going to get him on thousands of counts of bootlegging. Because, in fact, he is guilty. (laughs) He's going to try to avoid prison. He is, uh, the appeals process goes on for a while, but eventually, uh, towards the end of 1924, he has exhausted his appellate options and is going to be sent to prison in Atlanta for about 20 months. But before he does that, he is going to put all of his money, all of it, the house, the cars, uh, everything, all of his schemes, he puts it all in his wife's name because he trusts her.
0: And she's been involved kind of from the beginning of this operation. So she knows where all the bodies are buried, you know, figuratively. Remus was not quite at this point into violence the way Capone and other people were. But she knows everything about his business. He's been very open about that from the beginning. So, of course, if things go the way he doesn't want, he wants Imogene to have that control. Which is a very trusting move.
1: It is a very trusting move. And it's also like he wants her to know that he trusts her. He also wants her to know that she's taken care of in case the worst happens. And he also, like, puts this stuff as far away from himself as possible. Like, put it in his wife's name. And he goes to prison. And in prison, it should be mentioned, he gets Cadillac treatment. They bring him food. And even his wife is allowed to bring him special meals. And she cleans his cell. And... It was kind of an interesting marriage, but he's got access to books and unlimited access to his lawyers and things like that. But he does have a roommate. He and his roommate get to be friends. Unbeknownst to Remus, his roommate, whose name is Franklin Dodge, is a federal agent acting undercover. And in the course of being roommates at this very sort of luxury jail, Remus tells Franklin Dodge that his wife is in charge of everything. So, Having this information, armed with this information now, Franklin Dodge is going to get out of prison because he never really actually was in prison to begin with. And he is going to be assigned to Imogen Remus. He is going to go to Cincinnati and butter her up and make friends with her and figure out all the schemes uh, that George Remus is involved in. And wouldn't you know it, Becca, one thing leads to another. No. Yes. Franklin Dodge and Imogen Remus fall in love. Mm-hmm.
0: They fall into something.
1: They they fall into, <laughs> yeah, Let's how about that? They fall into something. And she's going to betray Remus. She basically sells him out. And he gets like whiffs of this in jail, like rumors reach him that his wife is starting the double cross. And he doesn't believe it at first. But
0: when we say the double cross, I mean, she basically, she with the help of Dodge, I mean, they liquidate everything remus had multi millions of dollars they're gonna divest everything and she basically leaves him with a hundred dollars
1: he gets out of jail and this is true and he (laughs) goes to his home this beautiful home it's cold-hearted it's terrible He goes to the home and he finds that she has stripped everything. Every stick of furniture, the sconces on the walls, all his rare books and art, the baths, the Imogen baths that he'd been so proud of have been completely taken out. Uh, The only thing he's left with in the house, she leaves him with clothes that are not his size and shoes that are not his size. So basically he walks into his home and her lover's clothes are hanging in the closets and her lover's shoes. And she's even changed the monograms. Like they have, he's, everything has been monogrammed because he's wealthy and you know, everything is monogrammed. GR. Well, she changes the monograms to FD for Franklin Dodge. This is cold hearted stuff.
0: And I have to imagine, I don't know if this is how it was, but I have to imagine there's like an envelope and there's like $100 bill. We just basically like buy yourself some groceries. you popper.
1: Right? Like, <laughs> bye dude.
0: And I think even colder than any of this is they attempt to have him murdered, Dodge and Imogen, then hire a hitman (laughs) because it's not bad enough that they've taken everything away from this man. They they are worried about retribution and they want to get him out of the picture. So they are going to hire a hitman for $15,000 to murder George Remus. But the would-be assassin is going to chicken out, basically, because George Remus is still a pretty famous name and a pretty important influential guy, even after having been in jail. And so this would-be assassin thinks, who do I trust more? I'll take this $15,000, and goes to George Remus and basically spills the beans. So now Remus knows that this is not just about money. It's not just about embarrassing. Like They want to kill him, and he's not going to be happy about it.
1: No, and he's kind of... He seems to have been a little amped up before this. He has sort of violent tendencies. Both of his wives will later, it must be said, but much later accuse him of being violent towards them. Uh, And he's, so he kind of goes a little insane. But after this like level of like betrayal, I can't fault him really for going a little insane. This would drive me to drink as well. He doesn't start to drink. What he does do though, is sue her for divorce. At this point, Franklin Dodge, has basically been booted out of the government because the government actually frowns on you forming a relationship with the person that you're supposed to be investigating and then stealing a lot of money. So he's been kicked out of the government and Imogen Remus and Franklin Dodge want to get married and live off the fat of the land off of all of this money that George Remus has spent years accumulating. So he's going to sue her for divorce. And on his way to the final divorce proceedings in Cincinnati, he happens upon her car. So he's in his car, she's in her car, and they're going to the same place. He instructs his driver to force her off the road, and they get into an argument. She runs away from him into a park called Eden Park in Cincinnati, and he follows with a gun and shoots her. In cold blood. Right in the stomach. Right in the stomach in the middle of broad daylight. And then he turns him in. Tell, Well, he turns himself in. Well,
0: and when you say broad daylight, I mean, it's another day. People are in the park. People are picnicking. People are strolling. And all of a sudden, this beautiful woman is shot by a man they all recognize as one of the most famous men to live in Cincinnati at this time. So it's the biggest crime to have happened in Cincinnati. And there's no question about who did it. There's no... It is it is very cut and dry as to who was involved in this situation.
1: And it's right before Christmas, too. So it's right around this time of year. So we've gone... In only, like, two or three years, we've gone from, like, this lovely New Year's party where they give diamond stick pins to shooting his wife in a park.
0: So it's, like, six years later. So not a very long turnaround to this marriage going from wonderful to terrible.
1: And so he's going to... Turn himself in because it's very obvious there are multiple witnesses. It's very obvious what has happened. Also, he doesn't need a divorce anymore because she's now dead. And he's going to plead insanity, temporary insanity. He acts as his own lawyer, which is a baller move because he'd been a very successful lawyer. And he doesn't trust anybody else to do this. He knows what's going on. Historical side note, by the way, the prosecutor in the case was Charles Taft, who was Becca. The
0: son of William Howard Taft.
1: Yes, he was.
0: Uh, he's dead at this point. But yes, a uh, former Supreme Court justice and president, William Howard Taft.
1: And Taft, Charles Taft, is on the rise. He's a prosecutor. He's making a name for himself. And this is going to be his first murder trial. It's going to be a big thing. And it's an open and shut case.
0: Yeah, for a prosecutor, you're like, OK, there's 100 witnesses. This guy turned himself in. You know, there's no question.
1: Right. But yeah, there is. Um, And Remus does such a good job. He persuades the jury that his wife had been terrible. And basically, like, he doesn't say it quite like this. But basically, the implication is she needed killing. And he's obviously all of her terrible things have driven him insane. And anybody would do the same thing. And therefore, he's not insane anymore and he's fine and
0: he gets his first wife who he had cheated on and left to be with Imogene uh he gets his first wife to show up and like stand behind him and you know sort of be this pillar of like what an upstanding guy and he gets his daughter to come to court and what a good father George Remus is and uh, his stepdaughter is uh the only one who's going to sort of say like no Remus is an abusive guy but every other woman in his family is basically going to stand behind him and beside him, and he's going to put all the blame on Imogen, which is just
1: something. Yeah, it is something, yeah.
0: And that clearly her actions drove him out of his mind in the legal sense, that he he would never have acted this way were it not for her infidelity and her dishonesty and her actions. And this all-male jury only needs 19 minutes to deliberate because
1: clearly Imogen was the problem. Clearly Imogen is the problem. She all but shot herself, really, you know? Um, And they basically say that, well, he had such a terrible Christmas last year, what with his wife dying and all. Why don't we give him a nice Christmas this year? And so they do. They acquit him on a temporary insanity charge. He's basically remanded to an institution But he's there for only a few months before he tells them, "Okay, I'm better now. And they let him out, which is (laughs) amazing to me.
0: Yeah, I'm not crazy now because I killed the woman who made me angry. Right.
1: Obviously, she's dead. So I wouldn't.
0: What am I going to kill her again?
1: What am I going to do? Kill her again? Yeah. So Remus, this is the most spectacular like rise and fall. He's gone from rags to riches back to rags now because Franklin Dodge still has all of his money. And he can't really get back into the bootlegging game because A, he's pretty famous and B, his old contacts have moved on. And C, at this point, we're in the later 20s and Prohibition has turned incredibly violent and he's just not about that. Killing his wife is one thing, but real violence is obviously not great. And so he doesn't get back into bootlegging. He is going to spend the rest of his life basically trying to pursue Franklin Dodge for this lost fortune and is unsuccessful in doing so. He does eventually marry a third time and dies in relative poverty still in Cincinnati.
0: George Remus getting married a third time to me is a real kicker to this story. Cause like his track record, if you had read the newspapers and knew anything about him, cheated on the first wife, killed the second who's jumping on that train for a third go round. Right. And it's not like he's got millions this time.
1: Right. It's not like he's got the money. He doesn't have any money. Who is signing up for this? I don't know. Anyway, his third wife actually does stick by him and nurses him until his death. And he dies in the 50s, like in his mid-70s. So, you know, relatively not rich. Like he doesn't die um, wealthy. But that's the story of George Remus, the king of the bootleggers and inspiration for Jay Gatsby.
0: Yeah, so I I feel like I didn't know. I, I knew that I knew a little bit about George Remus before we start talking about doing this on the podcast. And I sort of n- had heard that he was considered one of the inspirations for Jay Gatsby. But when you really know his story, you're like, there's no way F. Scott Fitzgerald isn't cribbing from his life. I mean, the indoor pool, uh, the extravagance, all of it, the, the the somewhat shady connections to criminals and the government, all of it is just so Jay Gatsby. And it's so tragic. I think a lot of people, when they talk about The Great Gatsby, we seem to focus on like the parties and that part of it. But it's really such a tragic novel. And Remus is ultimately sort of an American tragedy, right? His life ends in a really sad way, ends badly for Imogen. So it's now for me, I'm like, oh, it's so obvious that F. Scott Fitzgerald had to be cribbing, I'm sure with influence on a few other figures, but... Sure.
1: But it also like the doomed love story, like the back and forth and the ups and downs between Gatsby and Daisy... Um, it's been a while since I've read The Great Gatsby, but uh, it's very reminiscent of Remus and his sort of back and forth, up and down relationship with uh, Imogen. Uh, It's all sort of right there. And it just, like, the other thing is, how can he not have been influenced by this? Like, this must have been the biggest story in the early part of the 20s. You know, imagine, like, this exceedingly wealthy guy who's doing all sorts of illegal things and violating the Prohibition Amendment, which no one really likes, It must have just been very eager catnip for a writer of F. Scott Fitzgerald's talent.
0: Well, and really, we have to remember that the average American would have seen Remus as a hero, like a folk hero, because Prohibition was so unpopular. And imagine you're an everyday American. You don't make millions of dollars. You know, you're working in your factory or your mine or whatever. You know, you're working your domestic job and you have a little bit left at the end of the week and you want to have a drink. You want to go to the pub or you want to have wine in your home with dinner because that's what sophisticated people do. And now the government's telling you you can't. No wonder people loved these bootleggers and they loved these figures, even though what they were doing was illegal. The average American felt like, well, these laws are unjust. And so these are kind of the Robin Hood figures in many ways. So, you know, it's, and it's evident in things like these trials where the juries are like, how can we be mad at these guys? It's
1: not like he did anything wrong.
0: I mean, Attila murders his second wife.
1: Attila murders his second wife. What are you going to do? Again,
0: from a pop culture perspective, if you are interested in George Remus or interested in this period at all, I love Boardwalk Empire. I'm a big fan of the series. And it gets a lot of the history really, really correct. They do make a little change in terms of the character of, in real life, Mabel Willebrandt is uh, given a different name in the show, Esther Randolph. It's a little different. Mabel is a fascinating figure. I hope that we do a full podcast on her. Uh, She was buddies with Amelia Earhart, which I think is really cool, and she learned to fly. And she's just really sort of fascinating. And she gets to be the woman who brings down the king of the bootleggers. Um, If you also haven't watched the Ken Burns series Prohibition, there's a lot of good stuff with Remus in the Prohibition Can Burn series. And I really recommend that for getting a good context on Prohibition. But those are kind of the two big pop culture things outside of Great Gatsby, if you want sort of the Remus Remus experience.
1: There's a great book about it called The Ghosts of Eden Park by a historian named Karen Abbott, who's amazing. That's also quite good too. But yeah, Remus is fantastic. And if
0: you visit Cincinnati and go to the park, if you do a walking tour or anything like that, they believe many Cincinnati natives that Imogene still haunts the gazebo at the park today where she was where she was murdered oh and you can buy george remus bourbon there is a distiller in indiana that very cleverly has uh gotten the trademark to use george remus's name and story and they make small batch bourbons and other select distilled liquors um so if you're listening from the george remus distillery this is not an ad but we'd love it to be
1: (laughs) yeah we're (laughs) We're more than
0: happy to try your wares and uh, review them on the
1: pod we'll do a live tasting Ooh, yeah
0: uh, so I'm not sure what your New Year's Eve plans are, Rebecca, but mine are not going to be quite as extravagant as Remus's. There will be no Pontiacs or diamond stick pins. No,
1: sadly, I'm not going to find a thousand dollars. Maybe so.
0: I'll hide like five dollars in ones. <laughs> I was like, maybe I'll hide a handful of ones under Matt's. Right? Plan. Yeah, I don't
1: think I'm going to find a thousand dollars in a mid-engine plate. <laughs> <laughs> But hopefully you all have fantastic New Year's Eve plans and this episode can keep you warm into the new year uh, and for the next couple weeks until we're back at you with some inauguration frivolity and hilarity. Uh, so thank you guys, as always, so very much for continuing to listen to the pod. We love all of our listeners. If you enjoy everything, please rate and review us on whatever podcast app you favor. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we love to talk to people. So we are at All on the Instagrams and the Facebooks and the Twitters. You can email us at uh, G, uh, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We love episode suggestions. Uh, That makes us so happy and we've got a whole exciting slate coming in the new year. So feel free to let us know what your thoughts are and what am I missing, Becca?
0: Big, big thank you to our patrons. Um, everybody who supports us on our Patreon page, I-, I can't tell you how much it really impacts us. I mean, it literally keeps us going, keeps us employed, keeps us working. Um, all of our patrons should have received holiday cards and holiday gifts for some of our patrons at certain levels. So that could be you next year. Um, for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep us working while tourism is still taking such a hit. Uh, our patrons also get access to special videos and behind the scenes stuff. We have some fun stuff planned in the new year. You get um, discounts at our shop and on merch. Uh, We have an incredible shop where you can get t-shirts and stickers. Uh, We added some holiday goodies uh, in the shop. So everything you purchase, again, helps to support us. So we're just so, so appreciative of our patrons, our shoppers, our supporters. It means the world to us. This podcast has been a lifeline in this year. And it's so crazy to think this was the last podcast of 2020 but like Rebecca said this is going to continue on into 2021 we have a lot of fun stuff lined up our plan is to carry season one into the spring and date to be determined but we have lots of good ideas to keep you through the next few months so we hope that you have a safe and wonderful holiday uh, and we'll see you in two weeks
1: thanks everybody Bye.
0: I'm your host and in Arseniega, Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin, Becca Grahl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is tour guide tell-all. Until next time.